Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Show podcast today on the pod. BC Builds, the province's new housing program, gets a $2 billion federal funding boost. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau joins us as we talk housing. Plus, as automakers went all in on battery power, buyers remain hesitant. We look at the six months that short-circuited the EV revolution. And we got a rundown on this spring's legislative session of the throne speech and new budget launch BC's election year. That's all next on the Jazz Joe Show podcast. Today, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau committed $2 billion towards the provincial program. That's barely a week old. BC Builds was announced uh, last week. The program will involve nonprofits, local governments, public agencies, First Nations, and and community groups uh, to who will help to identify underused land across the province to create and build more homes for uh, means-tested middle-income renters. The $2 billion promised by the feds comes from the federal government's apartment construction loan program. Now, that money is on top of the more than $2 billion announced last week by the B.C. government as well. Prime Minister Trudeau said today that those federal dollars will help support and build anywhere from 8,000 to 10,000 new homes here in British Columbia. Here is Prime Minister Trudeau from earlier today. Premier Eby announced an ambitious and fundamentally practical new housing program that is going to turn underused public and non-profit land into affordable rental housing for the middle class. They've started with over 20 different sites where they will take parking lots, underused land around healthcare facilities, potential buildings on top of daycares, and work with partners to build apartments that meet the needs of middle class Canadians and their families. Part of that is working hand in hand with First Nations. But let's remember that these won't be your typical tiny one bedroom units that have been popping up across downtowns across the country. These will be units of all sizes, including up to three or four bedrooms. The kind of places where families can grow and they can call home. I was so proud to announce the $2 billion in construction financing for BC Builds to build actually attainable middle-income housing in our province using this land that's available. An additional billion dollars to drive down rents and costs even further. We're starting with rental housing. We're going to move into housing for purchases as well. This is a model that has been used in Singapore in Vienna, uh, in, uh, in far-off places like Seoul, Korea, and in Whistler, British Columbia. Uh, we know that it works, and we're taking that model and we're expanding it dramatically. That was Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and Premier David Eby at an announcement today. So what's this all mean? We've got so many housing announcements uh, from different levels of government with housing targets that get thrown around easily and you kind of forget, well, what's what's real here? Well, joining me now to talk about the issue is Chris Gardner, President of the Independent Contractors and Businesses Association. Chris, thank you for joining us today. Great to be on the show, Jess. So your thoughts on this, Prime Minister Trudeau here in Vancouver uh, with Premier Eby uh, announcing that they want to... Uh, you know, pay into and help fund a provincial program or be involved with the province. Uh, your your thoughts on that? Well, the concern I have about where we are with housing is that we've been underinvesting in housing uh, for decades. This is not something that just happened overnight. And um, if you think about what happened in Canada, you know, 50 years ago in 1972, we built about 230,000 new homes in the entire country. That's effectively the same number that we built last year. 51 years later. So we have not been able to move the needle on supply, um, which doesn't make any sense given how, how fast the country's population is growing. And so that really, the, the issue really is supply. And the challenge with where we are in terms of the people we're in, is the building new homes, um, is that when you think of the numbers, so CIBC two weeks ago came out and said, we have to build about a, um, 
every single year between now and 2030 about a million new homes. That's four times what we're building right now, four times. And so if you think about British Columbia, last year we built about 45,000 new homes in British Columbia. The billions of dollars that the federal government just announced is only going to provide, according to their press release, about 2,000 new homes a year. So less than 5% of what we need, and certainly far below the scale that is required to really make a dent in affordability. So the challenge is there's not enough government money to get us out of the hole that we're in. And if we want to get out of this uh, and tackle affordability in a meaningful way, we have to let the private sector build homes and right now, there's too, there's too much rules, red tape, and regulation in the way that's preventing them from doing that. So you're saying we need to build a million, or CIBC is saying we need to build a million homes in Canada per year. Uh, judging by today's announcement, that's a do- drop in the bucket. Uh, and what you're saying is in this country, we're building about 220,000 homes at this point, not the million that are, that, that are needed. So where's the bottleneck? The bottleneck is really in, in the regulatory framework that per, that, it's, that means that it takes far too long to approve and permit housing projects. And, and, and so it shouldn't take four to six years in, in, in many communities in the Lower Mainland to approve a high-rise tower, for example. Um, so we've got too much of the approval process that gets bogged down inside City Hall. And what cities have to do to cope with the, the challenge here is get some of the simpler approval and permitting processes and take it outside of City Hall. Um, there's no reason why City Hall can't rely more on expert engineers and consultants and contractors um, to do the basic and simple things required in home construction. You know, no one's reinventing the wheel here. Um, and the fact that everything still has to go into City Hall, it gets bogged down in City Hall, um, is, is a big part of the roadblock. The other part of the, of the issue in, in in terms of affordability, is just the taxes, fees, the levies that are being layered on housing by every single level of government. Uh, Metro Vancouver, for example, has increased the development cost charges per unit from about $9,000 a door to about $25,000 a door over the next two to three years. They made that announcement uh, a few weeks ago. Um, And that's just symptomatic of of the, the fees and, and, and taxes that are being levied on homes make it more expensive. And then finally, if you think about what the federal government did two weeks ago, the federal government convened a national summit on auto theft. Well, where's the national summit on housing affordability? It does not serve anyone well to have the federal government going off in one direction, the provinces going off in one direction, and then City Hall doing sort of left to their own devices. So effectively, the first-time home buyer is left struggling with a lot of finger-pointing between the different levels of government, a lack of coordination, a lack of collaboration, and it all shows up in an affordability challenge that really the hole is so deep as it's going to take us an awful long time to get out of it. Uh, you know, when I think of, you mentioned high-rises or single-family homes, I just think, man, that's a lot of carpenters, that's a lot of uh, framers, a lot of plumbers. Walk me through where we are in regards to labor right now, in regards to actually getting things built. Well, the challenge we have with uh, in the construction workforce, and it's happening across our economy, is we've got an aging workforce. About 20% of construction workers are going to retire over the next five years. Uh, the retirement aging instructions are a little younger than the, the broader economy, so it's 60 years old. Um, so that's a challenge. 
And then we look at the immigration system. Uh, our immigration system doesn't work well for Canadians. It doesn't do a good job of identifying the skills gaps in the economy and then go out there and recruit the people to come in to fill those gaps, whether it's doctors, nurses, tradespeople, technicians, all of those people we need. The challenge is last year we took in about 460,000 new permanent immigrants to Canada. Only about 2% of those people are going to go into the construction trade. That number should be up to about 8 to 10%, which is about the representation of the construction jobs in our economy. And so we need to do a better job of bringing into Canada people with the skills in, in construction trades and other specialty um, skills um, that are going to help build our economy. That's failing us right now. And, um, and you know, we are, you know, we need immigration. Um, and there's a, there's a lot of, if you look at our population, uh, it's increased over the last two years by 2 million people. across Canada's population has got by about 2 million people. In 2022, that number was about 825,000. Last year, about 1.2 million. So a lot of people are coming in, but we're not doing a good job of making sure they have the skills that we need. And so, and, and a good portion of those people, about two-thirds, are temporary immigrants. These are international students, people on temporary work visas. Um, and so that's putting an enormous amount of pressure on all, all of our infrastructure. Um, so we've just got to do a better job of finding that balance, but making sure we're bringing in the people with the skills we need to fuel our economy going forward. Uh, my final question to you, uh, the, the announcements made today are sort of medium to long term, and some would say, what are we going to do in the short term? Do you see this getting better, this housing challenge, rental challenge, in three to five years? Do you think we'll be in a better place? I mean, we're still going to have immigration. We're still going to have people moving here. Do you think we'll be at a better place at that time, or do you think it's going to take longer than that? Well, I think, um, I think we'll, be, we'll be better, but there's no magic bullet here. And, and, and it has, there does have to be better coordination between the federal, provincial, and local levels of government. Um, city halls have to get more efficient in terms of how they approve and permit projects. We've got to stop uh, layering on fees and taxes uh, on housing. You don't make housing cheaper by making it more expensive to build. Um, and, so, and then on the immigration side, we do need, we've got to be recruiting more people who are interested in, in skill trades or have a skill trades background so that we can put them to work to help build the infrastructure, not just homes, but the roads and bridges and, and all the other the, the schools, the hospitals that we need um, to support our growing population. Chris, thank you for your time. Great. Thanks very much, Jeff. Appreciate it. Well, we spent a lot of time talking about uh, the green revolution and green um, transition. We talked, spent a lot of time talking about uh, electric vehicles. I found something interesting uh, today. Ford Motor Company cut the price of its electric Mustang Mach-E by as much as $8,100 U.S. after sales tumbled by 51%. Uh, in January of uh, this year, uh, the automaker lowered the prices on a multiple versions of that model Mach-E. Uh, some of the range was about $3,100 in some cases, $8,100 is the higher end. Uh, the company made the announcement uh, today. And what's interesting is Ford is also cutting a production of not only the Mach-E, but the Ford F-150 Lightning plug-in pickup truck. 
Uh, and the Michigan plant where the F-150 Lightning electric truck is built, uh, it also, um, they had announced in 2022 that they would uh, quadruple the size of that factory. Uh, but uh, what's happened over the last six to eight months, well, things are changing in the EV market. Ford is not only cutting the plant's output by half, but re- relocating people to other facilities, um, which once again uh, shows that uh, the transition to uh, EVs is not a straight line, and it's going to be very much, very much challenging uh, for the industry. Joining me now to talk a little bit about uh, the electric vehicle revolution and the challenges before it, especially over the last year or so, is Jeremy Cato, automotive journalist at CatoCarGuy.com. Jeremy, thank you for joining us today. Great to be here, Jazz. Lots to talk about here. It's not just Ford, but General Motors, Volkswagen, uh, others, uh, other companies as well, who all expected EVs to to drive up sales in a significant way. They also were, of course, keeping a close eye on uh, Elon Musk and Tesla. What's happened over the last year, six months to a year, where there has been sort of a sluggishness in, in EV sales? Yeah, uh, well, just about a year ago, Tesla started this whole craziness by introducing a a big price war um, because Tesla could afford to do it while the legacy automakers weren't really in in the place. Tesla has lower production costs, uh, lower development costs, and no significant marketing costs because Tesla doesn't have either a marketing department or a PR department. So in a traditional legacy automaker, about 25% of uh, of its expenses are marketing costs. You get you and I uh, all sorts of other people into the showrooms or to order online and buy a car. So if you look at Tesla's position to strike um, a price war in EVs, it has a 25% advantage on the marketing side, and then its production costs are lower than the typical uh, legacy automaker because, amongst other reasons, Tesla is a non-union shop. So that started things. We Mm -hmm. had a price war, and you combine that with costs, um, for consumers because of inflation, high interest rates, and you, you could inevitably predict that there would be a slowdown in EV sales, just taking the EV ownership equation out of the, out of the discussion. Hmm. Now, Ford has said, uh, as they pull back on their EV investment, they, they lost $4.7 billion last year. This year, they're estimating they'll lose even more, $5 billion to $5.5 billion um, in their battery power uh, division. Uh, is this a, a temporary thing where customers are also just saying, wait a minute here, the prices just don't, like I can't afford an EV at this particular point. And, and of course, the range anxiety that still may be there and the cost of powering your vehicle all the time. Is there a hesitation there in your mind from the consumer still? Oh, it's not in my mind. It's in the minds of consumers when they're asked by all all the different market surveyors like J.D. Power and Associates or Consumer Reports. They, you know, the, the upfront cost is the upfront cost, even though, well, you, you mentioned at the top that the Ford had reduced the price of the Mach-E Mustang. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I happen to have just posted a road test of that on my website, a shameless plug, mm-hmm. um, uh, the, the most recent version. Well, if you look at the operating costs of a, a Mach-E Mustang for a year, um, around 600 bucks. And if you were to buy a, a luxury high-performance uh, crossover comparable to that, it would probably run you around 2200 to $2,400 a month in fuel costs. 
Uh, that's according to Natural Resources Canada. So the operating costs of an EV, of an EV are much lower and will remain so as long as electricity rates remain low. The problem is that Maki Mustang that I just tested was $83,000. Oh, jeez. <laughs> right? So, you know, I mean, I, you know, I grew up in an age, well, my first car, you know, shameless uh, storytelling here, I paid 200 bucks for, for, uh, for an old uh, a Chevy Nova and then rebuilt it in my dad's garage. So when I go from, you know, a 16 year old built rebuilding his first car to, uh, you know, at $200 to a Mach-E Mustang at $83,000, I, it still takes my breath away jazz. It's, and I think most families are like that. The typical household income or uh, in Canada is around $80,000, $75,000 in that area. Mm-hmm. So you're asking people to spend the entire before tax household income on one car. That's just not sustainable in today's environment. So we need the prices to go down. And let's talk a little bit about the battery itself. I mean, that's probably part of the issue as well. There was, of course, uh, we, we talk about lithium batteries. We talk about nickel. And I guess prices there have dropped a little bit too as EV uh, prices struggle. Uh, and the, 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 the actual co- the, the, the stock prices for a lot of these companies has also been dropping as well. And the pricing as well as a, as a commodity. Well, I mean, you know, again, they, they should, you know, as um, if, you, if you took, you remember your, you know, first year economics, I mean, supply and demand, and when there's more supply, um, you will, you should have consistently lower prices as long as demand that doesn't outstrip, uh, 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 demand doesn't outstrip supply. What? The, the, but the, one of the challenges going forward with the battery side of it, which you've, you've alluded to here, is that it takes about 20 years from uh, conception to actual producing uh, minerals for a mine to get up and running. There's so many regulatory ba- ba- battles that have to be fought by mining companies, which is why almost nobody starts a mining company anymore and nobody digs a mine because it takes so much work. And this is why battery costs will go down to some extent as the production uh, skills increase and so on. And But until the mining piece of it catches up, we're still going to face shortages of some minerals that are critical to building batteries. So I don't expect battery costs. Well, not, not me. Again, if you look at the research, the people who really studied this stuff, we will see a decline in batteries over time, but it will not be so dramatic to dramatically reduce the price of a car. Let me go back to what a cost of a battery is. The the, that Mustang Mach-E that I just talked about a little bit, mm-hmm. it came with the super long-range battery, which gets you, you know, 450 to 500 kilometers of range. The premium on that over the base battery in the Mach-E Mustang, $13,000. That's what the option costs. So oh, wow. that's where 13000 of that $83,000 price tag was just in upgrading to the long-range battery. So what do we need? Well, one of the things that's happened in China is that the, the China's been experimenting with vehicles with shorter ranges that have less expensive battery packs. And you can buy a very inexpensive Chinese BYD, uh, I think it's called the Seagull, in Shanghai. You can buy one of those for about $10,000 U.S., but it only has a range of under 200 kilometers. We spent a lot of time uh, talking about uh, the announcement today by Premier David Eby 
and Prime Minister Trudeau uh, regarding BC Builds now with $4 billion. But uh, there's lots more going on in politics today. As expected, the throne speech uh, was delivered by BC's Lieutenant Governor Janet Austin. And of course, um, that speech focused heavily on the province's future housing needs. Um, Ms. Austin began by emphasizing the actions the government is taking and will continue to take will boost the number of middle-class homes available in the province. Take a uh, listen to Lieutenant Governor Janet Austin. For generations, there was an unspoken promise. If you worked hard, got an education, and played by the rules, you could make a good middle-class living and be able to afford a decent home. About three decades ago, that started to change. In the name of austerity, governments at all levels stopped investing in affordable housing. Wealthy speculators, foreign investors, and big developers rushed to fill the void. For far too long, we also saw the proceeds of illegal activity parked in BC's real estate market. Housing costs went up, and in recent years, the combination of inflation, interest rate hikes, and a lack of supply has only made the situation harder for people looking to buy or rent a home. That was Lieutenant Governor Janet Austin speaking a couple of hours ago. Of course, uh, that is just the throne speech, gives you a sense of where the province is headed. There will be a budget as well. Then then you can actually put some hard numbers as to what the government will focus on this year. And of course, this is all occurring in an election year. So everything is very much heightened as we head into this spring session. Joining me now to talk a little bit about what we can expect is Keith Baldry, Global BC's Legislative Bureau Chief. Keith, welcome. Hey, Jazz. So your thoughts on all this, a lot of focus on housing, but there's also uh, talk about infrastructure, uh, BC Hydro, uh, energy, health care. Your take on all this? So first of all, phone speeches rarely produce really detailed nuggets of news. It's more like a general roadmap of where the government's been and where it's going to head over the next uh, year or so. So mostly general, very general um, comments and, and suggestions and clues and hints. So you're right, a lot of talk about health care, um, a lot of talk about housing. Housing got a, a fair amount. And the economy all, always gets a major share. But you're always looking for clues. And one clue and one message that stuck out to me was this, a section of the speech that said, uh, the government makes a simple commitment to you. It will have your back, so you're not facing these new challenges alone, because leaving people to fend for themselves does not work. That's in keeping with the housing announcement recently last week and again this morning, where suddenly the government is in a, views itself as a, a vehicle to provide aid not just to low-income people, but to the so-called missing middle. And for the first time, you're seeing governments embrace this need or this agreement that people who earn as much as, in David Eby's words, as much as almost $200,000 a year in terms of family income may need government assistance, whether it comes to uh, from uh, housing or perhaps through some expanded financial uh, aid packages. We're going to see that in the budget, see how far that extends. But the fact that you got two levels of government spending $4 billion on housing for people who have six-figure incomes is a huge shift in, in uh, 
public policy. Yeah. And that was reflected in the throne speech as well. And let's put that in context for our listeners. The, the, the BC Builds program specifically, where they hope to build uh, homes on underused public lands, the income threshold for, for those homes, those are three and four bedrooms, by the way, not one bedroom, but so three to four bedrooms. The threshold is $84,000 for a single income and 191000 for a household income. Now, today, Housing Minister Ravi Kailan also talked about the government's plan to protect renters from, as he called it, bad faith evictions. Let's take a listen to him. We know that there's uh, more and more people now finding themselves in very difficult situations, uh, sometimes homeless, homelessness, uh, because we have uh, some landlords that uh, say they're using their place for a family member, but end up using it for um, just bringing somebody else in at higher rents. So we need to make sure we find a balance between uh, having the ability for a homeowner to have a loved one come into their place when they need it, but also ensure that the, the rules that are there uh, for the right reasons, are not being abused. And so legislation will be coming forward to help strengthen that important piece. Keith, what do you make of that? I mean, generally, as you say, uh, throne speeches are broad in general, but uh, when, if I'm working for the Landlords Association, you hear that and you go, what the heck is going on? Well, I mean, the post-throne uh, speech uh, scrums is where we get some of the detail. Mm-hmm. And that's where Ravi Kailan, the, housing, uh, the government house leader, started to provide some detail. So we expect to get, that might be in the budget, it might have to wait, but again, we've been told there are 20 bills, this is from the Premier, uh, in the session dealing with issues such as housing, affordability in general, and public safety, and healthcare. So uh, yeah, that would fit where the government's headed. I mean, the government's shown it intends to be very activist in the housing sector. So if you're a landlord, you you should be surprised by the fact that the government has signaled that it considers not just home ownership to be an issue, but renting, because rents are so out of control in much of BC, particularly Metro Vancouver, they're unaffordable for people earning even six-figure income. So, yeah, if you're a landlord that's engaged in some questionable practices, um, you better think twice. Yeah, what I found interesting, I remember during the 2017 legislative session, and maybe it was the campaign of 2017, then-premier or then-candidate John Horgan was saying a high income was about $70,000 for a single person. And now you have the NDP talking about 85000 for a single person up to 194000 This is a whole different NDP, isn't it? I mean, they really are focusing on that middle-class uh, middle uh, voter. It's a, shift. It's, a, it's a historic shift for this party. Um, to, again, the, the go back to the, the government of the 90s, or even, as you say, the Horgan government, most of the aid programs, financial packages, are sort of um, income uh, means-tested. And it tapped out at 70000 80000 a year. And there's a recognition now, as the evidence mounts, that, again, people earning six figures in Metro Vancouver, when they're paying, you know, 60% of your take-home pay or 70% on rent alone, mm-hmm. you're just not going to be able to fund or afford a really good lifestyle, not just for you, but for your family and your kids as well. So this is a big shift. It's a significant one. And we'll see how big it is when we see the budget on Thursday. I, I'm looking for um, some sort of energy-tied um, payback, sort of a rebate, and also an expansion of some existing programs to allow people who earn more than the old figure of 70000 or 80000 to now qualify for some of these programs. Uh, as an aside, I just wanted to ask, because I have uh, BC1 in, on in the studio, and I, I saw Kevin Falcon up responding to the throne speech, then I saw John Rustad. At what point does the press gallery go, who's the official opposition? I know what the official opposition is, BC United, but the polling would tell you it's actually BC Conservatives. At what point do you guys say, okay, what's John Rustad say? Uh, 
and which is probably more important than what uh, Kevin Falcon is saying. Well, you know, we amongst ourselves talked about that. What, at what point is the alternative voice? Right now, it's uh, you know those two plus the Green Party. Um, although interesting, I didn't think the Green Party had a response, but today we were, got emails about Falcon and Rustad. Everything was turned on its head because the whole thing was late because there was a protest here. The lieutenant governor couldn't get in the traditional way. Uh, but that's an interesting question, It'll be, and you know we'll see how that plays out in the session, Jazz. It, you, you can be sure John Rustad is already showing signs that he considers himself and his party to be on equal footing as BC United, both in terms of procedures in the House and speaking time and all this such. And he's going to insist on equal time when it comes to scrums. Keith, thank you. All right, take care. Let's uh, focus a little bit on local politics, uh, Richmond politics specifically. Now, last week there was a motion introduced by two Richmond uh, councillors. They wanted they were pushing for a supervised drug consumption site in the municipality. There was significant amount of backlash against that motion. There's a lot of yelling at council, threats, sometimes even racist comments. Now, council ultimately approved the motion, a 7-2 vote. Uh, two councillors um, uh, voted in opposition, Alexa Liu and Chak Ao. Uh, but many were surprised that after they supported the uh, supervised drug consumption site, uh, the Vancouver Coastal Health came along and basically said uh, that at this point, uh, Richmond didn't have the density in, in to, uh, at this point to actually uh, open a supervised consumption site. Many felt that the provincial government behind the scenes uh, didn't want this issue before uh, residents, especially in election year, uh, especially after that vote was uh, the, the the motion was supported, uh, so that's uh, caused a considerable amount of debate uh, in that community. But I said it was a very much a polarized conversation, uh, which has led to a lot of yelling, and threats, and, and racist comments as well. And now, one of the councillors who introduced that motion was Cashied, and he is the he's Richmond City Council, but he's also a former West Vancouver Police Chief and a former Solicitor General of BC, and he joins us now. Cash, thank you for uh, joining us today. Always a pleasure, Jazz. So you have uh, sent off a letter to the editor and uh, in regards to what's transpired in Richmond over the last uh, couple of weeks. Why did you feel you need to do that? Well, I think it's very disconcerting uh, uh, to a lot of people out there and some of the feedback I get from some of the people in Richmond with respect to what is going on in our community uh, kind of caused me to write that and the fact that I've continued to get the uh, misinformed uh, letters and emails from people and the threats that are continuing against my family and I, it's quite concerning to me. And I, I want to just send this uh, again to our media people and others to make sure that uh, they're aware there's a lot more at play here than just a public policy issue. It's a significant and important public policy issue, but there's more on the damaging consequences, for example, as society as a whole, on the behavior that continues with respect to this. Um, who are these people who, I mean, the people who aren't happy with what has transpired, are they people who are just adamantly against the, 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 the safe supply, uh, against uh, a, safe, a safe consumption site, sorry, uh, or are they, or is this a broader, wider organization? Is it a misunderstanding? I'm trying to get an idea of what the opposition actually is to what, what, what transpired. It's a, it's a mixture of that. We have a lot of people uh, that uh, do live in Richmond or frequent Richmond that have a real misunderstanding, and it's mainly driven by the uh, misinformation that's being perpetuated out there by several people and have not taken the time to actually read the motion to understand that 
it would up to be it'd be up to the health authority in the province and the federal government to uh, enshrine this in Richmond. Uh, others are more or less coming from just the extreme right ideology, a very spiteful position, and attacking me personally. So I think it's a it's a real mixture, Jazz. Unfortunately, a lot of it is driven uh, by intimidation tactics. Uh, how do you feel when the council voted? And the vote was the vote. I think it was 7-2 in support. Uh, but then uh, Vancouver Coastal Health comes out and says that uh, there isn't a need at that point for a standalone supervised consumption site. I mean, did you feel, and that I, I don't believe comes just from a coastal health authority. It has to come from uh, uh, the provincial government, a direction from the provincial government quietly behind the scenes. I mean, do you feel that you're kneecapped by uh, Victoria, by the NDP government in this case? Well, not necessarily kneecapped. I'm just calling for political interference. And again, I think the, we have to be aware. We want to put people's lives in front of politics, and I think we need to. Every one of these types of facilities should be out the province of British Columbia because every community has this specific problem. At the end of the day, we have to deal with our problems. We just can't send them out of our particular area and hope that someone else deals with it. We are incumbent upon an elected local government to make sure that we take care of our community. And I want to do that regardless of the the socioeconomic position you may be in the city of Richmond. So what happens moving forward here? A very divisive uh, uh, debate. Uh, There was a protest uh, on Family Day as well uh, in Richmond. Uh, Where does the community and city council go in regards to moving forward? Well, I think we've got to look at how dangerous this is in dividing our society here in Richmond along the lines of ethnicity. Now, we are a pluralistic society, and we must remain like that. We need more people to come out and really talk about that. We, we don't need to increase this element of uh, discrimination, this element of violence based on harmful stereotypes. We need to make sure that, first of all, the correct information gets out to people. We need to keep the politics out of this jazz. Yesterday, we saw a a right-wing element from the political field that were involved in there that don't even have uh, any association in Richmond, that don't even live in Richmond, but are grandstanding on something that they think will be a populist vote for them. But do you, I mean, I get where you're coming from, but we're, as you know, we're in in the early stages of silly season, which is a provincial election campaign, uh, many would argue has already begun. Um, And this is one of those issues that are very divisive, uh, and especially in Richmond. I mean, there's a, a, you know, voters in your community that say, look, we do not want to see any of this here. Um, And I don't see how, whether you're for or against, you get beyond that core opposition to it. I mean, council voted 7-2. Uh, but there's certainly an organized group outside that said, no, this cannot move forward. And certainly it spooked the provincial government and certainly Coastal Health to say there was a need for a consumption site here. I mean, clearly uh, there are, there's always going to be some politics behind this. There will always be politics behind this, but we've got to take an approach where we can deal with these contentious issues and critical public policies. For us, burying our heads in the sand is, is not the approach we should be taking. And at the time where we enter what you call the silly season, I have to agree with you, is we need to deal with that sense of division. We need to make sure that we can get that cohesion and progress in place. We've got to get away from this uh, 
politics of discord that seem to be played out. And a lot of it, I think, is a halo effect coming from the United States with respect to what they're dealing with in their political environment right now. And I think a lot of people are attracted to that for some particular reason instead of working together uh, so we can deal with our problems holistically as a society. Uh, How do you sort of move forward anyway? I mean, you've had threats. Uh, I'm sure there are probably racial slurs directed in your direction as well. Uh, how do you move forward? I mean, it's kind of hard to be doing your job when you know there's an element out there that A, has threatened you, threatened your family, and, uh, you know, made racial comments towards you as well. Well, I've always had those racial comments, as you can imagine, through my 32 years of policing, and you come at, uh, become come, uh, somewhat callous with those particular comments. But at the same time, I've taken the security measures in place to protect my family, but... Jazz, I got to tell you, issues like this motivate me to even try harder to make sure that we have correct policies in place so we're able to talk to the people that can't stand up for themselves. I believe this is the correct path, and I will continue down that correct path, regardless of the uh, threats, intimidation, uh, and whatever else is directed towards me. My family is a different issue, and I've taken that seriously, and that's uh, where I put most of my uh, concern recently as, as far as safety goes. Cash, uh, as always, thank you for your time. Thanks, Jazz. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.